Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we're reading a series of texts in Mark 6, 1-30, beginning with the story of Jesus being unable to perform miracles in his hometown, which leads us to think about the ways we sometimes struggle to hear truth from those most familiar to us, and the possibility that we must sometimes let go of comfortable places to grow into our true potential. We then read the story of Jesus sending out his disciples, empowering them to carry on his work when he can't do it. We pay special attention to Jesus' instructions to his disciples, who are to travel without food or money, relying on the hospitality of strangers and ministering from a position of vulnerability and trust in the community. Finally, we read the strange story of John the Baptist being beheaded by King Herod, which we take as a warning about the fickleness of empire, which recognizes the truth of John's ministry and yet ultimately executes him anyway. We have a lot to talk about today, y'all. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, it's Bible Worm time. It's Bible Worm time. It's the best time. No, bedtime is actually the best time. My kids I think that this is true, or is that mostly your my, song? My da- <laughs> that has always been my song, but my daughter does agree with me now. She's 15, and she agrees that bedtime yeah. is the best time. I have a silly thing to say. What is that? Yesterday, I was, uh, I was writing thank you notes to our new Patreon supporters. Yes. As I do from time to time. So you should totally become a Patreon supporter just so that I will write you a handwritten thank you note. But I was like, I want to feel more connected to like who these people are. Yeah. But not in a creepy way. I didn't start Googling people. (laughs) But I did start asking Alexa what the weather was in every town that I was writing to. (laughs) That's amazing. It is really cold in Minnesota. Yeah. It is really cold in Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. I uh, did a talk up there a couple years ago at Augsburg University in Minneapolis. And the day I was there, it was like minus 23 degrees. And I think they had a policy where they would cancel oh class gosh. if it was like minus 25 degrees or something crazy like that. It, I just... In mm, Arkansas, mm, mm. it's like, what? It's below freezing? Oh, <laughs> oh my I goodness. Know. I know. My daughter came down while I was doing it and heard just the tail end of this weather report saying there was some kind of like, you know, winter storm warning. And she was like, there is? And I was like, no. <laughs> yeah. No. It is chilly here, but it's not, we're not having a winter storm. <laughs> no. Yeah. Minnesota. Cold. Yeah. Fun exercise. To all right, the Amy. weather where all our listeners are. Our yes, I'm ready. is less, is less fun, or it's fun in a very... I don't know if today's text is fun. It's a, it's a curious little Slightly text. Slightly gruesome way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you like beheadings. Depends what you consider fun. 
All right, so we're in chapter six, picking up in verse one, and we're going to extend the narrative lectionary just by two verses. The narrative lectionary is one to 29. We're going to read one to 31, just because it kind of brings some things back to a close. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that's what we'll do. We were just last time in the previous verse. I don't know that we needed to make any connections, but you want to make any connections? I mean, I I guess I would can just remind people that what happened in the previous chapter was uh, first Jesus crosses over into Gentile territory and has that whole situation uh, with the demoniac where he casts out the legion of demons. Yeah. And then he crosses back into Judean territory and has this sort of dual healing, one of a woman who touches his cloak, who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years and is healed, and then one of a little girl who actually dies and is very sort of quietly behind closed doors, privately yeah. resurrected yes. by Jesus. And then the chapter ends with him telling them to give her a snack, and then we pick <laughs> up, because she's had a long day, Yeah, and then we pick up here. Yeah. No, actually, that was so helpful, Amy, because what you're reminding me is just that Jesus has been wildly successful in the last few Mm -hmm. chapters in terms Mm -hmm. of his teaching, in terms of his healing, in terms of casting out demons. He's been Mm -hmm. wildly successful in Gentile territory. He's been wildly successful in Jewish territory. Mm -hmm. And now in today's text, he's coming back to his hometown, Nazareth, although it's not stated here. And he's going to be a little less successful which is yeah. kind of kind of an interesting dynamic in this text. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'll pick up in chapter six, verse one, and I'm reading in the Common English Bible. Jesus left that place and came to his hometown. His disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were surprised. Where did this man get all this? What's this wisdom he's been given? What about the powerful acts accomplished through him? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't he Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? They were repulsed by him and fell into sin. Jesus said to them, Prophets are honored everywhere except in their hometowns, among their relatives, and in their own households. He was unable to do any miracles there, except that he placed his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He was appalled by their disbelief. So there's some really strong language, at least in the Common English Bible's translation of this. The one that I was most drawn to right there was they were repulsed by him and fell into sin. Mm-hmm. And my translation there is pretty different. Oh, yeah. What is it? In the text itself, it says they took offense at him. And then it has a note that it could be they stumbled. Yeah. Which maybe that's the falling into yeah. Sin suggestion. Yeah, that falling into sin, the word there in Greek really means something about tripping over something. And it can be mm. the the act of tripping or yeah. the thing you trip over. So it's like a stumbling block. Yeah. I actually think that's a helpful one. Like they fell into sin sounds like they, <laughs> whatever, they like grabbed a cigarette and drank a beer and had underage sex or something. Yeah. <laughs> like that's uh-huh. not, that's not what they did. It just, I think it means that they, they were unable to yes. accept the message that was right there in front of them yeah. because, because of the, like, who is this guy? How can he, how can he do all this stuff? Right. Right. 
all in the world Jesus has done is come to his hometown to teach in the synagogue. And they've heard about him, right? They seem to know all these stories about him. What is your sense of why they're so offended by by Jesus? This The way this story plays out is so uh, interesting, and I can't decide whether I think it's weird or whether I think it's exactly how humans would right. respond to this. So it's like first they seem to respond to the the novelty of what he's saying. Like, where did he get this? Yeah. Which for me, when I first read that question, I was like, are they going to dismiss it and say, yeah. what the heck are you talking about? Like, because right. people don't necessarily like novelty. Right. But they don't seem to do that immediately. They go on to call it wisdom. Like, there is some kind of wisdom that has been given yeah. to him that is of, they don't know what it is, but they recognize it as wisdom. Yeah. And then they recognize that there's some kind of power that he has beyond the capacity to speak this yeah. wisdom. So it seems to me like it's moving in a positive direction. Right. But then it's almost like it, it it goes too far. It like pushes what it pushes their, I don't know, expectation of this kid that they've known, they've known him his whole life. And, and they just can't believe that he is, that he's so fundamentally different than they are. Yeah. You know? I love that way of thinking about it, Amy, because it's not like they're accusing him of being a fraud or a charlatan or a magician or anything. They're, you're exactly right. They they seem to think he genuinely has been given wisdom. He genuinely has been able to do acts of power. And what they can't get their heads around is this is the kid from down the block. And mm-hmm. how can he do all this stuff? That word that's used there, isn't this the carpenter in verse 3? Mm-hmm. In Greek, that word is tekton, which means like someone who's, they're basically like a construction worker. It can mean carpenter, mm-hmm. and Jesus mm-hmm. often is thought of as a carpenter, but it can also be a, a mason or a bricklayer, someone who works with their hands in mm-hmm. this kind of construction mm-hmm. realm. And it's interesting, you could read this as disdainful, right? Like, how can a construction worker know all this? Or you could think of it as, when one, somebody who's like you suddenly is not like you anymore, like they've been elevated above you. Yeah. Like your friend from high school who was wildly successful. <laughs> you know? I th- when you started to say that, I was like, wait, how do you know about that friend? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that friend does it's not totally, know that you have a worm-themed Bible podcast or they would no, be jealous No, but it's true. Like when yeah. people who you know as just like a regular person who you think is like you yeah. and they turn out to be some crazy genius – it's uncomfortable. Yeah, it is. Yes. Is that the way you tend to read the townspeople then? Is here's one of our, somebody who we knew growing up and now they are so much more than we ever could have imagined. And so we reject that. Or do you think they're looking down on him? Like how could a construction worker know? I mean, I feel like it takes some sort of, mm, I don't, I want to say suspension of disbelief, but but that might not be the right phrase to be able to go along with teachings that are so new and say like, maybe these are really true. Like maybe yeah. this is really real. You have to pour a lot of belief and trust into, I guess the person who's giving it to you. And I, I just, it seems like they're almost there. Like it seems like they're almost there until they remember who this is and they just yes. won't, yeah, yeah, they yeah. won't let 
they won't let him be someone other than who they remember. So if they had heard that and seen that from anybody else, somebody from the next town over, they would have gotten there. I but think it's so. the the scandal of particularity or the scandal of knownness that is the stumbling block that gets in their way. I think so. Is that how you read it, or do you think there's a disdain, like a different kind of disdain? I th- I think you're reading it. I, I like your reading of it a lot. I think that's probably right, and I think it's very productive. And then it, that leads you to thinking about, well, okay, well then, what are the kinds of familiarities that lead us mm-hmm. to reject things that might feel true, but we mm-hmm. can't get there because of the the source? Yeah. I also think you know, in the way that I kind of always do is to say, well, but maybe there were people in the crowd who also were thinking about it this other way Mm -hmm. and then being disdainful, like people who teach in synagogues normally are not, you know, to be a scholar of the law, you need enough leisure time to Mm -hmm. spend, to read the Torah. To study. Yes. And Jesus somehow has gotten this knowledge without actually having the study. I mean, somehow, like, because he's the son of God, right? But but from (laughs) their perspective. And so you could also imagine people, like, even though he is speaking wisdom, they're thinking he doesn't have the credentials or the qualifications. And so I'm not able to listen to him because he's an uncredentialed speaker of Torah. And that, to me, catches me in a whole different way. Like, I can can relate to that almost, you know, like, PhD, whatever. Like, I, I, I think... There's certain things you need to know. And then I encounter people who have none of that background, who are smarter about the Bible and right. faith in some ways than I am. Right. And oftentimes my first response is, or at least it used to be, was to say like, well, what do you know? Mm-hmm. And I've had to really work to sort of overcome that. So I can relate to that, I think, a little more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And both of those are stumbling blocks to experiencing the truth, familiarity or lack of credential. And who do we listen to or not listen to? Mm. Now, Jesus's response, first of all, is prophets are honored everywhere except in their hometowns, among their relatives, and in their own households. Is there anything to say about that beyond what we were just saying? He sort of generalized it from me, the carpenter, to prophets. Yeah, and I'm trying to think how that how that a generalization puts a particular lens over this. I mean, prophets, okay, so these are like the proverbial mouthpiece of God. Like you have to believe that this person has a different connection to God than you do, even though right. you like shared the same, you know, gummy snacks <laughs> yeah. as a kid. And the work of prophets is really hard. Yeah. And when you're, I don't know, maybe when you're in your hometown, there's this expectation that everything is personal. Everything is based on this sort of interpersonal relationship and history and rootedness. And and prophets bring something really different. They're generally trying to uproot things and change things and bringing news that feels like it's from another planet. It's from another plane. There, there is a there. I, I can like feel the tension in my gut of of what that is, but it's a little hard to put yeah. good words around it. Because prophets are, you know, and even Jesus, when he announced the gospel at the very beginning in chapter one, it was hear the good news, ch- change your hearts and lives. Mm-hmm. So it was very much a you need to be doing something different than you are currently doing, 
even though it's good news, it is also critical. And I think there's something to that, that it's, it's harder to hear critique from people who are close to you sometimes. Yeah. I don't know. That's not always true though. Cause I, yeah, there are that's some people a, that I'm close to that I am happy to hear critique from. Cause I, I think it makes me a better person. No. And I think there is, I think that tension is exactly right because sometimes you need an insider to the community to be able to speak the language of the community and right. understand where they're coming from and understand their values in order to be able to communicate change. And I don't know if it's just that Jesus's teachings are so radical that it's not, we're not talking about that kind of incremental, I'm going to hold your hand and take you step by step through this. I'm going to ask you to cut ties in some ways with what right. you have known. And so so maybe that that knowledge of of the community is and so or their expectation that comes from that relationship is is a stumbling block. Yeah. I'm not sure how directly related this is, but I do some traveling around and speaking to groups and preaching in different congregations. And I've had pastors, and sometimes I'll preach kind of edgy sermons just because I can. Mm-hmm. And I have had pastors say, thank you for saying what you said, because I could never say that. Yes. My congregation could not hear that from me, yes. but they could hear it from you. Yes. And I've been wanting to say that. I just couldn't. Mm-hmm. And there's something there about the familiarity, but there's also something there I think about, you know, I come in and I say what I have to say, and then I move on. Yes. And I don't have to have a... Con- an ongoing relationship yes. with them mm-hmm. like the pastor does. Mm-hmm. And they can always say like, okay, well, Williamson, we don't have to take that on board or they can, I don't know, give some distance to it. Well, and they, they can sort of hold whatever pastoral things arise as, right. as people process what you've said. Right. I mean, we've had the same thing. I know my congregation has had, had guests, scholars come in and, I have felt very acutely that they did things that we could not do, not because we don't know how to do them, but because precisely because they came in as the expert for a short time and then left. Right. Mm -hmm. Now we were talking earlier about how wildly successful Jesus has been. He just cast out a legion of demons. Mm -hmm. He just healed a woman who had had a 12 year flow of blood. He just raised a little girl from the dead. Mm-hmm. And here we get the notice he can't do any miracles there. Yeah. And then in the little, I love the little bit. I mean, he healed a few people with, with like by touching people, them. But like, <laughs> yeah. nothing like what it like was. Like they before. had a cold or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> still, like things that you and I could not do, he was still doing. But he couldn't do these kind of dramatic miracles. And and then we get the note that he was appalled by their disbelief. My translation has he was amazed. Amazed, which I actually liked because the word amazed reminds me of the, I don't know if it's the same word in English or Greek, but how people responded to, responded to the miracles that he did was just sort of that sense of, I don't know, I can hardly believe what's happening here, but I see it. You know, the word there is thamazo, which I actually think that he was amazed by or astonished at or surprised by, I think is a better, I think the appalled here might have a little bit more negative of a connotation than it really needs. Yeah. Can you talk to me about how you understand the connection between, so they have not accepted him. He's amazed at their disbelief and he's not able to work miracles. It's not that he chose not to work miracles. He was unable to do them. That's just, I don't quite know how to put all that together. Can you help me? 
I mean, what came to my mind was the reading from last week where we were talking about this woman who touches his cloak and is somehow able to like draw power, like open some portal that Jesus didn't even know about. (laughs) Yeah. And it seems to be, you know, Jesus says that her faith has made her well. It seems to be that there's almost like some kind of alchemy, like there's some kind of the the coming together of faith with Jesus's power is what allows for these miracles to happen. And so now it seems like for the first time we're in a place where there's an absence of faith. Right. And and we see that like oh it really does it really does need both. I like that reading and the the other thing that you you were reminding me of is Back in Mark chapter two, when the four people lowered their friend Mm -hmm. through the roof Mm -hmm. and Jesus said, saw their faith, the four people's faith, and then healed Mm -hmm. the man. Mm -hmm. And and I actually titled that podcast, their faith has made you well Mm -hmm. to say like, it's, it's not the person's faith. It's the community's faith in that instance. Mm -hmm. But you're right about the alchemy. The reason I raised that Mark two is because I, I think that that is what's happening here. And also, I am so uncomfortable with the theological implications yes. of that. Yes. If what you're saying is the power is available, not you, but if what no, Mark I, is I saying is the power is available, if only you had faith to access it. Right. Now, when people ask for healing and are not healed. We can blame them. We can blame them for not <laughs> having sufficient convenient. faith. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know what to do with that. I want to name that. And I don't know if you have any <laughs> ways of softening that or I mean it's I I don't have a good solution I think you know I I think I ended the whole last episode with a big gripe about the healing stories they're just tough because it really seems to imply that healing should be happening all the time and if it's not something is wrong and I don't think that's what Mark is saying either yeah all I can all I can say in this case is that uh even if Jesus wanted to heal in this community, or even if Jesus wanted to use his power in some way, he's he's kind of blocked because the yeah. the activating ingredients are not present. Yeah. Hello, fellow Bible worms. My name is Amy Marie Epp. I'm a pastor at Seattle Mennonite Church in Seattle, Washington. I support Bible Worm at the early worm level, $8 a month. And I consider that professional budget dollars very well spent. What I especially love about being a patron at this level is having access to those podcast episodes a week early, since I'm often working that far ahead on sermons or on worship prep. Also, by the way, I love the sticker, which I put on my water bottle immediately. Amy and Bobby's insight and wisdom have become an invaluable resource for me. I look forward every week to hearing them chew through that biblical text together with curiosity and with humor. It feels like I'm a part of the conversation. That's why I wanted to support them in making Bible Worm possible. It still feels like a gift each week to have that Patreon episode land in my inbox. I hope all of you who are listening will also consider becoming patrons. And now, back to this week's episode. All right, so Jesus has now been sort of unsuccessful in his hometown. And so it's sort of an interesting moment for this next story, which is about him sending out his disciples yeah, who have, have been with him this whole time. 
and now he's going to say, okay, now it's your turn to go and, and, and do this thing on your own. So I'm picking up in, I'm actually in the middle of verse six. Then Jesus traveled through the surrounding villages teaching. He called the 12 and sent them out in pairs. He gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick, no bread, no bags, and no money in their belts. He told them to wear sandals, but not to put on two shirts. He said, whatever house you enter, remain there until you leave that place. If a place doesn't welcome you or listen to you as you leave, shake the dust off your feet as a witness against them. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should change their hearts and lives. They cast out many demons and they anointed many sick people with olive oil and healed them. My first question is an abstract question not grounded in the text, which which I know is your very first favorite one. But just coming out of that last text in which Jesus was in his hometown and unable to do the thing, and then we transition to him sending out his disciples, expecting them to do the thing. Do you see any connection? Like, why does Jesus do this at this moment? Or is it just kind of happenstance, do you think? I have, well, I... I had in my mind this sort of question when it talks about going to the the villages nearby. I don't know if that still counts as hometown or if now we're kind of in different territory. But almost regardless of that, I'm maybe impressed is the is not quite the right word, but I think it would hurt my feelings if I <laughs> if I'd had all this sort of, you know, power and he doesn't want all the popularity he has in the previous chapters, but it is, it is, there's a, there's an abundance of it. And then to find himself powerless to do what he wants to do in his hometown and then pick up immediately from that and say, well, what's a different way to do it? I guess I do read them as connected as like, Jesus is like, well, okay, this can't transmit through my body right now because people have stumbling blocks. Yeah. And their knowledge of what has what my body has been to them before is a stumbling block. And so we're going to find a different way. And that's, that's very emotionally mature. <laughs> I love that reading, Amy. And, you know, I was noticing that in that verse 6b, Jesus traveled through the surrounding villages teaching. And there's no mention of healing or casting out demons. Mm-hmm. And so it does mm-hmm. seem like mm-hmm. either because he can't or because he has decided to take a break or something that he's not doing those things anymore. The the, the things he was unable to do in Nazareth, he's teaching. And I love that way of thinking about Jesus sending out his disciples, despite his own sort of failure in the recent past and saying, okay, well, if it's not going to work for me, I empower you. I love that way. I love that way of thinking about it. Do you have a different way of thinking about it? No, that was better than anything that I've ever thought. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's high praise. No, I really loved it. I mean, to me, there's another insight one can gain from there, which is, you know, even Jesus struggled in his ministry at times. Yes. Yes. And that doesn't mean that nobody else could pick up the ministry and do it too. Mm. And so both for us as people who might be doing our own ministry to say when we struggle, like this is just part of ministry, right? Everybody struggles. But also what you were saying about emotional maturity there are times when our leadership works and times when it doesn't. And that ability to empower other people to go forth when yeah. times change, 
and to say it's it's time for somebody else to take this thing on. I, I think that's really powerful and important, not just in the story, but also in yeah. thinking about what we're doing in the modern world. Yeah. And to really sort of keep your eye on the prize, like what is it we're trying to do here? And you can say till you're blue in the face that the people in his hometown were wrong. Right. But the best way to move this mission forward is to, you know, place it in other people. Yeah. To go out at this. Yeah. I'm skipping a little bit, but it, in verse 13, they cast out demons, they anointed sick people, and they healed them. Like, they they did the thing. Like, yeah, they were able to do what Jesus had sent. Like, those things sound impossible. I think they would have been impossible, like, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So they, they have been able to embrace this power that Jesus has had seemingly sole access to, has now expanded to the community. Yeah. In between there, Jesus gives some fairly specific instructions about how to travel. Yes. And so take a stick, but no bread, no bag, no money. Wear sandals, but only take one shirt. And then stay in the place that welcomes you. I first read it, Bobby. I just read it too fast. And I read it, wear sandals, but no tunics. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) (laughs) whoa, what kind of ministry is this? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So do you, can you sort of walk us into that particular set of things? So if I understand correctly, they're sent out with a walking stick, sandals, and one tunic, but not an extra one. Yeah. You don't have a change of clothes. And they're not allowed to have any food, any bags, and any money. Yeah. I mean, it just so like flies in the face of my modern world assumption that when you're traveling, you should take do your best to take care of your own needs and don't be a burden to other people. Yeah. I mean, if I were going and knew, knew I'd have to stay in people's homes, I would be like bringing gifts for them. Right. Bringing, you know, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. this is, I feel like this is a very embodied way of saying like, you have to be vulnerable and like visibly vulnerable. And you're sort of at the proverbial feet of, of the people in the community. So it, it, it kind of just, it upsets the expected power dynamic in some way. You're not this like powerful teacher who's coming in who doesn't need them. Yes. You do need them. You don't have any food. Like, (laughs) you know, you don't have anywhere to sleep and you also have this power to share. So there's like this, it, it requires some kind of mutuality. Yes. Of you when you're within the community. And I think it also, like, it really presses you right into the daily life of the people. Like, you can't function independently from them and then just show up at synagogue and teach. Like, you literally cannot. But if you're in their homes, you see what their homes are like. And you see, oh, there is a sick person in the back of the house that they might not have mentioned to you. Or there is a, I don't know, the things that go on in people's homes we don't necessarily talk about in the public square. But this... This puts you right there. Yeah. I really like that sense of being embedded in the life of the community and knowing what's happening in people's daily lives. And I think that what you're saying about who's got authority and power in the relationship is so important. In the way that we founded Mercy Church and in the work we do now at Canvas Community, that's one of our principles is that we all have some things the other people Mm -hmm. need. Mm -hmm. And 
we don't come in like, here, I've got everything and let me hand it to you. But we really do think of ourselves as needing one another and people having different gifts to share. We all share what we've got. And it really does reorient the way that the community feels and how people can participate in the sort of relationships that you can form. Mm. The other thing that's in the back of my head reading that is the Passover story from Exodus 12, when they're getting instructions about how to eat the Passover. I think it's the same, mm. have, have a tunic, have a, have, wear sandals, have a walking stick. And then there's a sense you're going to eat real fast. And then out you go into the wilderness. And, you know, in the wilderness, there's a story of manna, which is God will provide what you need, which you and I talk about fairly often as sort of the ideal of the kingdom of heaven is God provides what is needed. And so in this interesting kind of way, this text sort of parallels that. You can have these basic needs, but you're going you're gonna to go. You got to be light on your feet. And you have to trust this time, not that God's going to show up directly with manna from heaven, but that the community is going to show up mm-hmm. with what you need when you need it. Mm-hmm. And that's in some sense, the, the ideal way of life. That's such an interesting parallel. And it really, for, for me, draws out in a helpful way, the faith that is required of the disciples. Yes. That's that either you can think about it as God working through the community or the however you want to think about it, they have to have faith. They have to have faith too in order for this to work. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So well said. There's two instructions then about how to treat the place where you go. The first (laughs) one is if you enter a house. So I think that means not just like if you, if you like get your foot in the door, never leave. But like if someone welcomes you in, then stay there until you leave. Mm -hmm. So the first place that welcomes you that's your place until it's time to move on to a whole other town. Why do you think that matters? That's, I'm so glad you asked that question, Bobby, because I didn't even, I didn't particularly pause on that before, but I could see how I could see two possible ways to think about it. One is that you, you just get to, you get it to form a deeper relationship with one household. Whereas if you go to a different place every night, you know, you, you can only get so, and you know, so involved with the family. Yeah. The other is just what it would be like for, if they were received well in the community, if they were popular, the way that people might be sort of, you know, jostling to get them to come yeah. into their home oh, and yeah, yeah. thinking that they're going to get some kind of, you know, just to say like, don't engage in that at all. Just stay in one place and don't, don't create that kind of sense of competition in the community. I love that. I think you had a different thought though. That was such a generous reading. I, I, I like that a lot of don't create competition in the community. So what I was thinking of was I would be tempted as the apostle if I got taken in by somebody who had a less than mm-hmm. luxurious house mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. somebody else who had a, you know, swimming pool and a sauna or whatever in their house was like, Hey, why don't you come stay with me for a while? Uh, that I might trade off and Mm want to sort of move up in the world, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so I really like that when somebody extends you hospitality, you accept their hospitality and you do not question the degree of their hospitality. Like it doesn't matter what they're able to offer you exactly. It just matters that they were willing Mm -hmm. and they were the first to offer you hospitality. So 
honor that. Mm, I love that. No, I love that. And I was thinking sort of similarly, but maybe from a more introvert perspective, like, what if you don't particularly like the people? Yeah. You like these <laughs> yeah. other people better. But yeah, this yeah. is saying in a in a in a statement that I think is very, I think Jesus would put the stamp of approval on this. Like you don't, you don't choose. Like right. <laughs> you don't pick between I like you a little bit better, you know. Yeah. We have whatever. Like you are you are where you are, and that's your community. Yeah. And you don't have to be your besties. Yeah, I like that. The other instruction is if a place doesn't welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet as a witness against them. What do you do with, I think the, a place is not like an individual household, but like a, if you show up in a town. Oh, a town. That's how I, I read that. I don't know if that's the only way to read that though. I like if you that can't find better. anyone to take you in, mm-hmm. then shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next place. Mm-hmm. As a witness against them. I guess that, that line is important too. I know, like, I have a little trouble with that statement. So it is helpful for me to think more generally and not like you're like shaking your dirty feet on someone's kitchen floor. That seems a little petty, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I think I've almost internalized it more as like, shake it off. Like don't, yeah. Don't be distressed by that. Just go on to the next place. But that doesn't really take account for the testimony against them. The Greek there is marturion autois, which could be read as a testimony to them instead of as a witness against them. Does that make any difference if you read it as the dust off your feet as a testimony to them? If I wanted to take that in a more positive direction, which I'm inclined to do, but I don't know why, I think it would sort of just be like, just remember that I did come. Yeah. Like you were not left out of this. You were not ready to receive it, but, you know, UPS came and tried to deliver the (laughs) package, (laughs) you know, like, yeah, that it is a testimony of, you know, this proverbial good news traveling through time. It did come here. It just didn't come all the way in. Yeah. Witness against them to me sounds so final. Like it, it has been said. And so now whoever cares about the witness, which is presumably God, has a witness against you. Testimony to you seems to me like it leaves open the possibility that you could realize, Mm -hmm. like, oh, my gosh, that person needed a place to stay and we rejected them. And they, like, showed us that that was true. And maybe you could yet still change your life. Yeah, it's a way of saying you can't pretend this didn't happen. Right. But witness against them makes it sound very much like you are on trial. Yes. Like, and that, yes, it's a little sharp. I mean, maybe that is how the author yeah, I think, is seeing this, but yeah. I mean, there's, yes, I think that is a reasonable reading, but I don't think it's the only one. I, li- I also like your reading about like shake it off and yeah. you don't need to linger over the places where you have been rejected. Mm-hmm. It actually connects back to the previous story where Jesus, it does. When he gets rejected, he sends yep. people out and like, let's try a different right. way. Okay. What's a different way? Yeah. Like, don't get, don't get distracted when things go wrong that yes, you were right. You were right, Jesus. And you were right, disciples. The other people were wrong, but don't perseverate (laughs) on that. (laughs) Like just move on. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So at this point, then we get introduced to this story that seemingly has on first glance has nothing at all to do with whatever we've been talking about. And I have Mm -hmm. no idea what to do with. And so your task is to 
Oh no, I thought you were going to say, but I'm going to tell you how they're related. <laughs> well, I ha- I have some ideas, but here we go. Okay. So Herod, the Herod that we're talking about now is Herod Antipas, who is the son of Herod the Great, who was king, at least according to Luke, when Jesus was born. This So we're a generation later, Herod Antipas. Herod the king heard about these things because the name of Jesus had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and this is why miraculous powers are at work through him. Others were saying, he's Elijah. Still others were saying, He's a prophet, like one of the ancient prophets. But when Herod heard these rumors, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised to life. So I just want to pause there and say we had no idea until just then that John had I been know. beheaded. I didn't even know John was dead until this. Yeah, paragraph. we knew from chapter one that he was arrested. Remember we how we talked arrested. about that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this That's is just right. like, oh yeah, by the way. He's- also dead. Also, I beheaded him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Since yeah. we paused, let's just, let's just, since we paused here, on that introduction. Any thoughts about that? Like Herod's trying to process who Jesus is and he comes up with, this is John who I beheaded. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting that, that all the people who are trying to figure out like, what's the deal with Jesus? I mean, it makes sense. Like your models are things you have known before. Right. So like there is a tradition, Elijah will come back. So maybe it's Elijah. There's clearly some kind of, understanding that Jesus and John the Baptist are related, both because people are saying here, maybe it's John the Baptist. And also because they're saying maybe it's Elijah, because we know John the Baptist was kind of Elijah-like in the first chapter. Yeah. But then Herod, I mean, what follows is helpful to me in understanding what why Herod yeah. is thinking this, but it really, he seems like he's, it's almost like he's being haunted. Like Yes. Yeah. Like, not just he agrees that it's the John baptizer who John yeah. the baptizer, who some other people have also said, but he's like, no, no, it's, that's the guy I beheaded. Yeah. Like, it's like the telltale heart. A little is bit it totally? Like yes. <laughs> yeah. This is the telltale heart. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's read the story of why he beheaded John. And then we'll come back to this conversation. Okay. Verse 17. He said this because Herod himself had arranged to have John arrested and put in prison because of Herodias, the wife of Herod's brother, Philip. Herod had married her. But John told Herod, it's against the law for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias had it in for John. She wanted to kill him, but she couldn't. This was because Herod respected John. He regarded him as a righteous and holy person, so he protected him. John's words greatly confused Herod, yet he enjoyed listening to him. Finally, the time was right. It was on one of Herod's birthdays, when he had prepared a feast for his high-ranking officials and military officers and Galilee's leading residents. Herod's daughter Herodias came in and danced, thrilling Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the young woman, "'Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you.' Then he swore to her, "'Whatever you ask, I will give to you, even as much as half of my kingdom.' She left the banquet hall and said to her mother, "'What should I ask for?' "'John the Baptist's head,' Herodias replied." Hurrying back to the ruler, she made her request. I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a plate right this minute. Although the king was upset because of his solemn pledge and his guests, he didn't want to refuse her. So he ordered a guard to bring John's head. The guard went to the prison, cut off John's head, brought his head on a plate, and gave it to the young woman, and she gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard what had happened, they came and took his dead body and laid it in a tomb. 
So I just have to say that you started laughing when John's head ended up on a plate, and I want to know what that was about. Because this story is ridiculous. I mean, this that's that. I mean, that's that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. You enjoyed your daughter's dancing, so you offered to give her anything, and she said, "I want." a man's head on a plate. And so you're like, oh, well, I guess I can't do anything about that. And you yeah. do it. I'm, I know I shouldn't like. <laughs> no, no, look, I think. Yeah. I, I shouldn't laugh. Vows are taken very seriously in in the Jewish world and, and many worlds. But like, come on. I mean, in that sense of it being sort of funny, like there's several places in there where it reminds me a little bit of the Esther story. Yes. Especially yes. where the king says, I'll give you whatever you want up to yes. half my kingdom. Yes. And this idea of a woman sort of working the system to get what she wants. Mm-hmm. In the case of Esther, it was a very good thing in which she saves the lives of her people. In yes. the case of Herodias and her mother, they're working it for evil purposes, but it's the mm-hmm. same kind of trope. And it's kind of funny in Esther, and I think it's kind of funny here. Yeah. Can you help me, first of all, with what what is John's apparent problem? like? Herod and Philip and Herodias. What has even happened? I mean, King Herod married his sister-in-law. His brother is married to someone, and Herod wants to marry that same woman and does. Yes. The Taurus says you cannot do that. (laughs) The only time you could do that is if the brother had died. If the brother had died. Yes. Yes. But, yeah, you you can't do that. And so John tells him you can't do that. Yes. Um, But it seems, that seems to anger his new wife more than it angers Herod himself because she wants to kill him. Yes. Herod seems, you know, willing to imprison him, but he's got some fascination with John. Like he he respects him. He doesn't really understand what he's saying, but it's almost like he can, I, I imagine in my imagining, he like feels there is something about this man, even if it doesn't really compel his intellect. He likes being in his presence. He likes to listen to him and he's not going to kill him. I love the way that line is in verse 20. John's words greatly confused Herod, yet he enjoyed listening to him. I just thought, I have no idea what you're talking about, ma'am, but. But just keep going. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah, Yes. It's very interesting. Speaking of the Esther text, Herod there reminds me a little bit of a Hasuerus. Yes. Mm -hmm. In that story. Can you, it reminded you too. Can you say a little bit about that? I mean, I would, I say Ahash Verosh, same guy. He's the king who's just sort of like this, he's kind of a doofus. Like he's, he's the foreign king in the story. He also likes to hold these banquets where ladies are dancing and people are drinking and like, you don't have any respect for him. He's not uh, evil. He's just kind of easily manipulated. Right. And not very smart. And so in the book of Esther, you mentioned that Esther does convince him of something and it's for the good. He also has Haman who works in his kingdom who convinces him rather similarly, like, oh, is it okay? Is it cool if we just like wipe out all the Jews? Would that be yeah. cool? And the king is like, whatever. Sure, fine. I yes. know, whatever. Do whatever you want. And so I get that sort of vibe from Herod. Like, he's not being evil here. He's not very savvy. He's, he just seems very naive. Yeah. And so he's being kind of batted around by the world around him. Even yeah. Though he's supposed to be the king. I think in both those cases too, Ahasuerus and Herod, 
what they seem to care most about is their sort of public facing reputation. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, in the book of Mm. Esther, Queen Vashti embarrasses the king in public. And so she gets deposed. Yes. And here, Herod, he's been called out by John. Although it's not him that gets upset, I guess. It's his It's his. But he does wife. put him in jail, though, so John can't true. continue to, yeah. maybe so that John can't continue to do that. I don't know. It's not clear to me that that's the reason he's put in jail. Yeah. But The Herods had this interesting kind of relationship with the Jewish population because Herod, the great's mother, was Idumean. She was not, she was a Jewish convert. Mm. And so he was always a little bit like, viewed with suspicion about whether he was truly Jewish or not Jewish. And that carries down. And so being accused of not following the Torah Mm -hmm. is a thing for the Herods, right? You're only Jewish when it's convenient for you to be Jewish. Mm -hmm. And so that particular way of kind of picking at him might have maybe Mm -hmm. struck a particular Mm -hmm. chord. Mm -hmm. Right. And then that actually helps explain why he feels compelled to actually go through with this crazy thing his daughter has asked for. Yes. If we believed that he was a really observant Jew, you could say like when you make a vow like that, that could be construed as a a vow with religious obligation to it. But it seems like that's not what happened here. It's that he made the vow in front of other people. Yeah. Yeah, he says, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests. And his guests are the high-ranking officials, the military officers, and the mm-hmm. Galilee's leading residents, like the muckety-muck of mm-hmm. Galilee. And mm-hmm. so it's about the the elites have heard this vow, yeah. and he needs to keep it. Another Hebrew Bible text that sort of rattles around in my head, or at least sort of story, is Ahab and Jezebel, where there you have a... Israelite mm-hmm. king who is, I mean, he's okay. He marries Jezebel, who sort of, especially in the story of like Naboth's vineyard, sort of manipulates him. Mm-hmm. He's a little bit of a doofus, mm-hmm. and she has this design to get rid of Naboth and steal his vineyard. And so I don't know quite if that's, but there is a nervousness in the biblical text about queens. Mm-hmm who might manipulate their kings and kings who might be kind of doofuses. Mm -hmm. So we get these two female figures in this text, Herodias and her daughter, whose name might also be Herodias. Mm -hmm. They have a complicated dynamic. I don't know how to sort through. How do you think about these two women and their roles in this story? I mean, I actually had to keep reminding myself as I was reading that because I could like, you know, feel my heart rate going up at this portrayal of a woman trying to grasp at the power of the man and what she does with that power. And and there are not that many female characters. And so, you know, it feels that the representation of women feels like it stings that, yes. that this is how this goes down here. Mm-hmm. And so I had to remind myself there are many women in this story who are not like this. Right. So I'll just sort of keep reminding myself of that. But I feel like she really is a a sort of stereotype character in some ways, this woman who doesn't have official power, but who somehow uses, you know, usually it's more like the wiles of her own sort of intimate relationship with the king. And here it's, it's removed by a generation and it comes through her daughter, although when it says her daughter danced, I'm not sure what kind of dance we're talking about here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, 
it just all feel it feels very convoluted to me and yeah. like like I picture like the sirens in the sea who are like calling yeah. you to your own destruction and that somehow there's an intertwining of like femininity and sexuality and the men get confused and yeah. the holy man is murdered like that that's the sort of vibe that I feel but I don't know how much of that I'm importing into this so I'm trying to slow myself down no, I think all of that's really insightful. The, the dance is often interpreted as having sort of erotic overtones. I don't know that you have to read it that way. Like she maybe she did the chicken dance or something and everybody thought it was really cute. It's like um, a ballet recital. Yeah. yeah. This, the word for young woman that's used here is the same word for young woman that was used in the previous story of mm. Jesus healing Jairus' daughter. And she was 12. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we think of this young woman, like she's probably a young woman of marriageable age, but maybe recently so. And this is about the same age that we imagine Mary was. Right. That would be like, an, if anyone wants to write a paper, just thinking about that moment in a woman's life through the yeah. lens of the gospel would be really interesting. Yeah. Because now we've had a couple examples and they're very different. Yeah. So here's my impossible question. That's not impossible, but the <laughs> question is, if we just think about this story as itself, mm. what do you think it's, why is it, why does Mark tell us this story? What are we supposed to learn from this story? Do you think? I guess, I don't know that this quite answers your question, but I feel like what this story puts back on the table is we know from this story that King Herod, whatever kind of fool he was, he had some sense that there was something different and special about John the Baptist. And yet the, not even the proverbial empire, like the actual empire here, like that, all that, all the temptations of the world, how, you know, that fame and sex and reputation among the powerful in the world, like those things, it's just like a story of how they, how they overshadowed something that Herod seemed to recognize. Yes. And then when he when people start talking about this person, Jesus, like he immediately, it's not like he just forgot after that. Like he knows, he knows (laughs) that this is not how this should have gone down. But in the moment, it all made sense to him. And he felt like he had no control over what he was doing. Like he had no power to prevent it. But we can read the story and say like, of course you had the power to prevent it. You're the king. Right. So I I guess that is the the closest to a a message that I would sort of come from is more like it's a a tale that should give us pause and caution that like the how did this all unfold and yet in the in the broader context of what we're talking about it's clearly crazy to do but we can see how one event led to the next. Yes. I really like that reading Amy. And I've noticed, and like a much smaller scale, I've noticed that here at Hendrix, it's like when you try to figure out who has the power to make changes, nobody that you ask actually thinks they have any power. Mm. And you can go all the way up and they're like, I, there's nothing I can do about it. Mm-hmm. And it, it's fascinating. Like somebody someplace mm-hmm. is exercising power, but institutions are sort of like that. And all the more empires are like that, that they're kind of unpredictable and they have their own things work out in ways that nobody entirely can foresee. And so there's a cautionary tale here 
a little bit. Yeah. I really like your emphasis on he knew, Herod knew something was special about John and yet it still played out. Like just because Herod realized and was interested in what John did, it ended up being a dangerous world for John. It also, of course, in the Gospel of Mark foreshadows what's going to happen to Jesus. Spoiler alert here in a few chapters that in the same way that the empire did that to John, they're going to do it to Jesus too. And so you can kind of anticipate that that's coming. I wanted to add two verses to the narrative lectionary, and these are they, picking up in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him everything they had done and taught. I decided verse 30 was far enough. So nothing actually happens in that verse, except the disciples come back. But what's interesting to me about it is it turns out this whole thing has been another Markan intercalation, which we Mm -hmm. talked about last time, Mm -hmm. where you tell a story in the middle Mm -hmm. of another story. And so here it is that the story of Herod beheading John is inserted into the middle of the story of Jesus sending out his disciples and them returning. And so the question is, maybe it's just like this is keeping up with a timestamp, right? They had to we had to do something while the disciples were out doing their thing. But if you try to read that beheading of John story in the middle of the story of the disciples going out, does it add or change or nuance anything for you? I'm so glad you added that verse, Bobby, because it really, it really does. In that last part, you were talking about how an institution sort of comes to have a mind of its own, like it comes to be its own entity that nobody thinks they have power in. Like even the king doesn't think he has the power to do it because he is beholden to the empire. But every part of the empire, maybe empire is the wrong word here, but the kingdom, everything is beholden to him, but he is beholden to it, which is sort of nice in a mutuality sense, but also not at all nice because at the end of the day, nobody is really willing to take ownership of what's happening here. Right. And that makes me think of of the first story of Jesus being in his own community, where mm. it sort of is like the, the in, quote-unquote institution there would just be like, this is uh, the world as we know it. Like there is, there is something we all know as a community and we share it. And so everyone wants to sort of elevate that as the most important thing. And then also when he sends out the disciples, I mean, at the end of the day, it kind of comes down to like, is someone going to let you in their house or not? Mm. Uh-huh. I don't know. What are you What are you thinking? I love all of that. I think my, my sort of simplistic reading of it is this happens in the middle of the apostles going out into the world, sort of is a warning. Mm -hmm. This has happened to John. This is going to happen to Jesus. Mm -hmm. When you go out, it probably is going to happen to you too. Mm -hmm. Especially in the time of Mark, when we're sort of in this struggle between Judea and Rome and all, all of these, like it's a complicated world, but maybe now even still. And so like, it's a dangerous world that they've gone out into. And so you, you might well expect that the institution is not trustworthy and it's going to turn on you, even if the intentions are good. And then your emphasis there on, and in that kind of world, hospitality is urgently important. 
that seems right to me that we need places where we to find places where we can be taken in because the empire is not got our best interests at heart. It's also interesting to me that the way that starts out is Herod heard about these things. He heard the disciples were out there and it reminded him of John the Baptist. And so the, somehow the disciples get Jesus back onto Herod's radar. He had been sort of hearing about it, but now it sounds like he's like, oh my goodness, they're like out there every place now. I don't quite know where that goes, but it's an interesting detail in the story that the yeah. way we get this, this thing starts to push forward toward Jesus's crucifixion is because the disciples go out in the world and right. Right. And Herod recognizes some kind of something that is similar happening in the world. And maybe that he didn't shut this down when he beheaded John. The power has been transmitted, which is both a wonderful thing and also a danger for those who carry the power. Mm. Okay, Amy. So when all of these ideas we've been talking about and thinking about our own time and place, what do you take away as being important for, for us today? I feel really compelled by that last uh, point or the last series of points you were making about the, the imperative to claim our own power to the best of our ability. I, you know, when I read this story, I don't read myself as the one going out in the world like the disciples. I read myself like the the person who sees the disciples coming by. I don't know why, right. but I know like deep in my bones when you for, refer to those situations where it seems like the institution or the tradition or the whatever you want to call it has has this standing that must be respected and adhered to. And at the end of the day, there's nobody who actually thinks, (laughs) like there's nobody actually thinking about it. It just sort of comes to be its own thing, that that's, that's a dangerous thing. And so, you know, what I, what I, before this conversation, I thought in my concluding remarks, I would talk about this question of, of what does home give us and when is it empowering Mm. and grounding and Mm. humbling in the best way to be home. You know, you hear of all these sort of movie stars and athletes that go home and they say they they find it very grounding because they still have to do the dishes. Like nobody cares if you're getting up at four in the morning to go to practice. Like you have obligations in this family and and that that can be a really good thing. They feel seen as a human and not just as this sort of movie star. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. And... We all, I think, have experienced, it doesn't necessarily have to be our home, but being in a community we've been in for a long time where people, the place expects certain things from us. And even if we know that we need to change and grow, that I will speak personally and say, sometimes I feel so sort of beholden to what people expect of me that I can't change the way I need Mm. to until I leave. Mm. So I'm just trying to smush all those different things together, like to really take seriously when I feel that stirring in myself that like I know something has to shift and to recognize whether the environment I'm in, can I do it or do I really need to be in a different place? And I think, and I think the answer to that shifts depending on 
depending on what it is we're trying to do and what are the forces that are, you know, holding us or grounding us or trapping us or, mm-hmm. you know, it could it could be any number of those things, but it's a really really interesting mix of stories in here. Yeah. I think I'll be thinking yeah. about these for a long time. Yeah, so much in one in one little chapter. So much here. in one little chapter here. What about you, Bobby? What what's feeling really urgent here to you? When I read this text from a perspective as a Christian, the first thing that always sort of strikes me, well, first of all, Jesus couldn't do something. <laughs> like, what oh. is up with that? And to me, that's a little bit comforting, in fact, to say, like, I try all sorts of things that don't work. And Jesus had a moment in his life where his ministry didn't work either. And so that, like, it's okay when that happens. But almost equally amazing to me is that Jesus tells his followers to go out in the world and do the same stuff he's doing, being a source of healing, casting out demons, preaching of the gospel. And my first instinct is like, they can't do that. Like nobody can be, nobody can carry Jesus's ministry into the world, but that's exactly what the expectation here is. And they do it and they do it successfully. And they come back and they said, we did this thing successfully. And to me, that is empowering to say, in fact, for those who are followers of the way, those who are followers of Jesus, like you get what you need when you need it. And so even though the task seems daunting and impossible, go out into the world and do it and you can handle it. It might not always work out, but you can handle it. I also really love the instructions about what to take with you. I'm very Mm -hmm. challenged by them, but the minimalistic nature of it, the embeddedness in the community that you were talking about, the reliance on the hospitality of others. I think those are such beautiful principles for how to do sort of, I don't know what mission work, I guess, but spreading of the gospel in the world is not from someplace on high with all the power, but someplace among where there's mutual reliance. That's how the gospel gets spread. And I struggle with that professionally just because it's hard to make a living that way. But in terms of gospel, that seems so exactly right to me. The last thing is this Herod story and the danger that is implicit. Even while they're out there successfully doing all these things, there is this story in the background about how the empire is ultimately fickle, unpredictable, and dangerous, even when it doesn't really intend to be. This little argument about who can marry who in the royal family affects John who really had nothing to do with it other than to point out like, hey, this is against the, the law. And so I think there's a warning in this text that if, if you actually are successful in doing the things that you're called to do, it might be dangerous, or at least it might not be well-received, whether in your hometown or whether in the empire. And you should just expect that. I really like to get patted on the head a lot. Like that's one of my, like, one of my favorite things. And uh, this, this is saying like, not probably not pats on the head, Williamson, probably like if you're doing it right, it's going to cause some good trouble to quote John Lewis. Mm. Anyway, so that's a lot in this text, but I think it's a really lovely empowerment of the community to go forth into the world and be a source of healing. Yeah. I love that. Bobby, one other thought came to my mind as you were talking that I just want to put out there. So I'll remember it. 
you talked about that interdependence, you know, within the community and not preaching from a place of on high and also not preaching from a place where all your needs are already are met. Like, I think that yes. sometimes in leadership roles, we feel like we can't have mm, needs. Yes. Like yes. everything has to be about the other person. And I, and I really appreciate that and, and feel it. We have to be mindful of what our own needs are, but that is not the model that's in mind here. Yes. Where it's human to human. Yes. So well said. Mm, good stuff. All right, Amy. So next week we'll be over in Mark 8, 27 through 9, 8, which is the story of Jesus's disciples finally figuring out sort of who he is. And then the story of the transfiguration on the mountain. Ooh, I remember that one. Like a Tide We talk commercial. about it every year. Yeah. yeah. It's a good one. <laughs> Ooh, this might be the Tide commercial one, actually. Uh, I look forward to it, Bobby. Thanks for today. I have a lot to think about. <laughs> Me too. I'll see you next time. All right. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash biblewormpodcast for details. Bible Worm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all of our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Join us next time when we'll be reading Peter's declaration of Jesus as the Messiah and the story of Jesus' transformation on the mountain in Mark 8, 27 through 9, 8. Until then, keep on digging.